Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Death of Death, where we proclaim Christ's victory over sin, death, and everything else. I'm your host, Nick Stewart. Today on the show, we're returning to our discussion on the ordinances of the church, otherwise known as the sacraments, and how uh, they relate to the death and resurrection of Jesus, as well as the death and resurrection in which we are united to him. But before we get into that, really easy, real short, orders of business, buy a shirt, sign up for our Patreon page. If you go to deathofdeath.net, you can do both of these things from the menu. You can click the shop button or the Patreon button, handle both of that. Uh, That's all I got, quick and painless, see? So on to the show for today. So last week we actually ended up talking a lot about the Lord's Supper or uh, Communion. It was meant to just be an episode on baptism, but these two sacraments are are pretty intertwined, so it wasn't uh, really a topic I could avoid, but it turned out for the good because uh, it inspired this episode, which is going to be all about the Lord's Supper. So baptism and communion are both sacraments given to the Church from God, uh, instituted by our King, Jesus. Uh, They are both means of grace, meaning that they are practices that uh, God has given us to uh, impart grace to us and edify us. And means of grace also include prayer and church fellowship and singing hymns and all that stuff, but not all means of grace are sacraments. There's only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These, uh, these two sacraments are also both signs of our union with Christ and our identification with his death and resurrection. So what is the Lord's Supper? Well, I'm assuming we know it's bread and wine taken by the church on Sunday, taken by baptized believers every Lord's Day. Uh, Every church I've ever been a part of has served grape juice and crackers, which are usually a type of unleavened bread. And that's probably your same experience with the sacrament as well. So, you know, I'm not probably telling you anything you don't know. Uh, But let's look to our trusted London Baptist Confession and see what it has to say in more detail. Chapter 30, paragraph 1 says, The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed, to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world, for the perpetual remembrance and showing to all the world the sacrifice of himself in his death confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. So this is the same covenant sign that Jesus and his disciples had at the Last Supper when we Um, When he said, this is my blood of the covenant, he was instituting this covenant practice for all of his followers, present and future. The London Baptist Confession also says in that paragraph that it's a confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits thereof. And we talked about this a little bit last week, that the sacraments do something within us. They are tools that God uses to strengthen our faith or confirm our faith, to edify us, to encourage us, and to unite us with our local church and the church universal. We don't really know how it works, but it's just something God does. 
Uh, the confession goes on to say that it's for the believer's spiritual nourishment. You know, it's vague language, but, uh, you know, what else could really be said of it? Like, how are we going to put into words the amazing things that God does in the hearts of his people? You know, the minute we try to explain every jot and tittle of this stuff, it's just, it's not only when we start making mistakes, but when we lose kind of the majesty of it. So it's better just not to speculate. Uh, The confession says that it's a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. So there's this cool kind of multi-directional thing that the Lord's Supper does where it's a sign and confirmation of our bond with Christ. Um, The fact that he saved us and brought us into the family of God and that we're in union with him. But it's simultaneously a sign of our bond with the rest of the church, local and universal. So we take it with our local church. So we're united in that moment of all taking communion together. And uh, we're also not only taking it on the same Sunday morning as the rest of the world is, but we're partaking in a tradition uh, that the entire history of the church has partaken in. So it it unites us to the universal church worldwide because we're all taking it on Sunday. Uh, but uh, also the universal church that has ever existed in the past throughout all of history. So it's this amazing thing where we're united to Jesus, our local church, and the universal church, past, present, and future. So speaking of the past, present, and future aspects of communion, uh, there's an interesting aspect to this when it comes to the memorial part of the meal. Uh, We take it as a memorial of the body and blood of Christ, broken and shed for us on the cross for our sins, and that's the past aspect. But we also take it as a sign of our union with Jesus and the church, just like we talked about, that's the present aspect, and the New Testament tells us that we take it until Christ's return. So every time we take communion, there's an aspect to it that's looking forward and done in anticipation of Jesus' return on the last day. And that's the, the future aspect of it. So the, Lord, uh, the Lord's Supper encompasses the, the past, present, and future realities of the history of redemption. And so, you know, if we're going to talk about the history, let's get into a little Old Testament to understand what led up to the institution of the Lord's Supper. I mean, there, there are a lot of things that prefigure the Lord's Supper in the Old Testament, um, you know, when you think about it as a memorial meal for Jesus's sacrifice on the cross, then the things that relate to it and lead up to it are pretty much endless. I mean, we the first animal sacrifice, probably a lamb, uh, that was done in the garden to clothe Adam and Eve after they sinned in the Garden of Eden. Um, that's that's the first of many animal sacrifices for sin that would continue until Jesus's final sacrifice for our sins on the cross. And they all prefigured the Lord's Supper. So, I mean, there's just kind of endless things that are kind of pointing forward to it. But where it really starts to pick up steam is in the Passover from Exodus. Um, That is, after all, the meal that Jesus and his disciples are actually celebrating when he institutes the Lord's Supper. They're having this Passover dinner, um, looking back in memoriam to the Exodus. Uh, the last plague that, that God inflicted on Egypt for not letting Israel go was the death of the firstborn. But he, he gave his people, um, the Israelites, uh, a way to escape this horrible fate that he had threatened. 
Um, he had them kill a lamb and put the blood on their doorposts. And interestingly, they would put the blood on the top, bottom, and sides of the door, and it probably resembled a cross a little bit, even though crosses wouldn't be used for capital punishment for centuries. But that's another topic. Um, But the angel of death would pass over, emphasis on pass over, any home with the blood on their doorposts, and that's where the name Passover comes from. The angel of death took the firstborn from every house in Egypt, but he passed over the Israelites. Uh, So the nature of the Passover was always redemption, uh, protection from the wrath of God. And this foreshadows the cross because God's wrath passes over us when we're covered by the blood of Jesus. So Israel celebrated the Passover every year from then on. It actually continues to this day. But uh, throughout those generations, they would celebrate Passover as a memorial of the Exodus, uh, all the way to Jesus' lifetime, about 1,300 years later. And that's what they're celebrating at the the Last Supper, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper uh, as the meal of the New Covenant. He brings a fuller meaning to the Passover meal when he stops in the middle of it and just says, this is my blood of the New Covenant. And it's also relevant that he said to do this in remembrance of me, because all throughout the Old Testament, Israel is commanded to remember their covenant with God, and God institutes traditions and practices that are meant to remind Israel of that covenant and all that God had done for them. So what I learned in preparation for this show is actually that the word apostasy actually has its roots in forgetting So the idea being that you forget certain truths and then end up abandoning that system of belief altogether. So when God commands Israel to remember, he's warning them against apostasy. And we see so many commands to remember, you know, all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, that's what all the feasts were about and, you know, certain sacrifices and and just everything Israel did was sort of to orient them toward remembering what God had done for them and remembering their covenant. And they're commanded to remember the Passover. And when Jesus attaches new covenant meaning to the Passover meal, and he institutes what we now call the Lord's Supper, he also commands them to remember. And this is also a warning against covenant apostasy, just like God did in the Old Testament. There's a time and a place to discuss what apostasy really is in the life of a Christian, whether true Christians can actually fall away in a permanent, eternal sense. Suffice it to say that true Christians cannot, but that definitely doesn't excuse us from warnings against apostasy. To say that people who, you know, considered themselves once to be Christians, uh, to say that they've never fallen away from the faith would be a complete denial of history and probably a denial of your own personal experience. Like, we've all probably known someone who, uh, you know, we thought was a Christian and they fell away from the faith. But back to the Passover, this connection between the crucifixion and the Passover sheds light on what Paul says about Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5 7. Uh, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So the Passover and the crucifixion always had this link. You know, they were always linked in this way. And the Lord's Supper has always been a memorial and remembrance of Jesus' death on the cross and our protection from God's wrath by being covered by the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb. 
And that's the past aspect of the Lord's Supper. But let's turn our focus now to the present aspect of, of communion. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a, partas- a participation in the body of Christ? So the Lord's Supper is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. So let's get into what that means. First, let's look at what communion is not. Uh, This is where the real controversy comes in on this subject. We're going to talk a little bit about the means of grace like we did last week, but we're also going to look at transubstantiation, and that's your $5 word for this episode. Uh, Transubstantiation was a common view that uh, the bread and, or I guess I mean it still is a common view, uh, that the bread and wine used in communion was actually turned into the body and blood of Christ. Jesus did, after all, say, this is my blood and this is my body. So some have believed that uh, while the outward form of the bread and wine remains the same, like it, it doesn't taste like human flesh or taste like blood, that would be so metal. Um, it stays bread and wine, but the substance of those things are, are changed into the actual body and blood of Jesus. While I was doing some research for this episode, I was uh, reading some R.C. Sproul, and he was talking about Aristotle's uh, substance and accidents. Basically, if you looked at me, you would see my accidental features. I have a mustache, I'm about 6'2", I have a shaved head, I'm ruggedly, ruggedly handsome. Uh, But those things aren't actually my substance. My substance is more like my inner being, and I can change my accidental characteristics. I can shave my mustache off, and uh, now that accidental characteristic of mine has changed. But the substance remains the same, even though the accidentals have changed. So uh, the word transubstantiation, notice the word substance in there, it basically means that the substance of the bread and wine is changed into the actual body and blood of Jesus, but the accidentals of the bread and wine remains the same. So the outward form remains cooked dough and fermented grapes, but the reality of it is Jesus's body and blood. So this view is commonly considered a Roman Catholic view, but it's not actually exclusive to that tradition. There have been some Protestant denominations that have held the same or similar views. Um, But the reason the reformers are considered to be the main force against transubstantiation is because the the reformers made it a Christological debate. Uh, There was still disagreement, you know, still is to this day, but they have um, they were having those disagreements in a different way. You know, Uh, according to Orthodox Christology, transubstantiation is not actually possible. So Jesus had a divine nature and a human nature, which were perfectly united. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God, so he has a divine nature, and that nature has the fullness of God. It is the fullness of God. It's it's omnipresent. Uh, you know, what happened in the incarnation is Jesus' divine nature was united to a human body. So he added a human nature to himself, and those two natures are perfectly united to each other. So when he was walking on the face of the earth, his human body was localized to wherever he was standing on earth. He was not omnipresent, but only present where his body was present. But his divine nature never stopped being omnipresent and never stopped being the fullness of God. 
So when he ascended after his resurrection, when he ascended, his human body still localized wherever it is, but he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So his human body is still not omnipresent, but his divine nature still is. So his body is localized. It's just sitting at the right hand of the Father. But with the doctrine of transubstantiation, the idea you know, that the bread and wine become the real body of and blood of uh, Jesus, you know, transubstantiation requires Jesus' human body to be omnipresent. Jesus' body would have to be present in every church on every Sunday morning, but his human body isn't omnipresent that way. So a proper Christology, an orthodox Christology, cannot allow for transubstantiation to be true. It actually does not come down to the silliness of bread and wine being changed into body and blood um you know it's the silliness of of bad christology that that makes this untrue that makes this you know arguable so the objection that uh you know the objection is that jesus um, said that the bread and wine was his body and blood and he also said he was a door so obviously that means something even if it isn't true in a literal sense it doesn't mean that he's literally made of wooden hinges, but uh, it does mean something, right? So when he says that the bread and wine is his body and blood, what is he talking about? Like, if he's if he doesn't mean that his flesh is actually bread and his blood is actually wine, then what what is the point of what he's saying? Well, he's talking about the sacrifice that his body would undergo and the fact that we need to be united to him in his death and resurrection. And so we symbolically need to feed on him. You know, in John 6, Jesus talks about this very thing, and he even contrasts his body with bread, explaining that feeding on him is a spiritual act and not a carnal act. But even in that moment, people misunderstood his words to mean something cannibalistic. You know, throughout the first century, um, Christianity was mischaracterized as a cannibalistic cult. And now we know that's not true, but those misconceptions never really went away. <laughs> and they eventually kind of evolved into the doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, I personally feel like we should have ran with the cannibalistic cult angle just for the street cred. But it's not really true, so I guess that would be dishonest. But all this that I've said about transubstantiation doesn't mean that Jesus isn't present in the Lord's Supper. You know, um, that's actually part of the debate is that he's obviously present, but since his body is not omnipresent, what is present? Um, obviously, his divine nature is still omnipresent. So Jesus is present with the church during the Lord's Supper, and that communion isn't merely memorial. It's real. Uh, it is memorial, but it's more than that. Like we talked about a little bit last week, uh, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. God is doing something through the sacrament. He's edifying us and strengthening us through it, uh, sanctifying us even. And the Holy Spirit takes the grace of Jesus and brings it to us through the means that God chooses. And in this case, it's the Lord's Supper. Um, so we've covered the past and present aspects of communion uh, but let's turn our focus toward the future aspect of it. By the way, if you want a really good book on the means of grace, like the Lord's Supper specifically, as it relates to being a means of grace, um, 
there's a Richard Barcelo's book. I'm pretty sure it's just called uh, The Lord's Supper as a Means of Grace. Um, I think it's called More Than a Memory. So that's good if you want to read that one. That's one of my favorites. Uh, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's an expectation attached to the Lord's Supper. And Jesus says in Matthew 26 that he won't drink of the fruit of the vine again until we all drink it together in his Father's kingdom. So even at the institution of it, baked into the very nature, not baked, bread, get it? Uh, baked into the very nature of the Lord's Supper is this look to the future, this you know expectation and anticipation of Jesus's return. Uh, so that's the future aspect of it. So to wrap up, the Lord's Supper, past, present, and future, communion with God, as well as communion with the rest of the church, past, present, and future. It's God's appointed means to edifying his church and uniting us to him by the Spirit. It is an identification with Jesus' death and resurrection and our spiritual union with him. We look back to the Passover and the crucifixion. We enjoy the benefits and blessing of it in the present, and we also look forward to his future return. So that's it. You probably couldn't fit every book on the Lord's Supper into a single library, but I did my best to boil it down for you here. Just the most pertinent information just for this episode. Uh, the issues surrounding transubstantiation alone could probably take a series of episodes, and I'm not smart enough to handle that kind of thing. But we'll probably come back to the means of grace in the future because, you know, there's just a lot to talk about there. And since we've kind of popped this cork, we might as well see it through. Uh, but that's all I've got for this week. So before you go, do me a couple favors. Uh, click the link in the episode description for Trevor's GoFundMe and give some money to help pay for his cancer treatments. And if you liked this episode, go ahead and share it. You don't need to blast it on your social media if you don't want to. You can just send it to a friend you think would enjoy it or maybe a friend you think wouldn't enjoy it, but maybe they should hear it. Um, and that's all I, I'm going to ask of you this week. I think that's easy. Every app has that little square with the arrow on it means to share something just hit a text hit a hit your facebook feed or your instagram story or something easy easy thing to do um so that's it that's all i've got for this week take care everybody talk to you next time